0: To have him in our worship family and our worship team, many asked a couple of weeks ago. Sarah, the girl out here, Sarah Gill, uh, sang a solo a couple of weeks ago, and many asked who was she. And Sarah, her husband, had been relocated back to Butler or to Butler, and we're thrilled to have her as well. Have your sermon notes in your bulletin. I encourage you to take them out. They're purple, I believe, or anyhow, they're this color. I know. I can't things just be red, black, blue, or brown. I'm not sure, but I know there's a color for that. We're going to continue our spring series this morning on the Ten Commandments. I said to you a couple of weeks ago, last Sunday specifically, that I purposely skip honor your father and mother, and I'm going to save that for Mother's Day. The other thing that gives me the opportunity to do based on the commandment that I'm dealing with this morning and that one as well is really spend the next four weeks, the next four Sundays together talking about the sanctity of marriage, marriage and the family. And so we're going to spend some time to do that and use these two specific commands, honor your father and mother, and this morning's, do not commit adultery, and talk about Mary's in the family for the next few weeks. I really believe that God has given me the material that I'm about to share in these weeks together. So I encourage you to invite a friend, somebody that you may know needs this information and uh, would be interested in it. So invite them uh, to be a part of our CAC family. We'll help them catch up to where we are. All of our sermons are online. Butler you can go back and listen to them all, but we want to encourage you to do that. When I began to look through this Ten Commandments series, I found that it was just as relevant today in 2012 as when it was written, 12 to 1400 years before Christ. We've been able to talk about God's passion for us and our passion for Him and how we express that. We've explored the issue of how we spend our weekend and what we do on this particular day. We've touched the relevant issues of creation versus evolution and the issue of abortion these last two Sundays. Today and for the next few weeks on family and the sanctity of marriage. I've said it before in your sermon notes that no other institution, I believe, has the ability to bring us more joy as well as more heartache and pain than the family. Some of the most amazing moments of your life, think about it for a moment, some of the most amazing moments of your life come within the context of family. The joy of having your kids come to faith in Christ. I hope that's one of the highlights of your life. When your son or your daughter accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, you invested in them, you, you loved them, you showed the way, but that moment they declared their allegiance to Jesus has to be one of the highlights of your life. The, the joys of childbirth, when they come into your life, and the thrill that brings, weddings and graduation ceremonies where you've seen them take those steps of their life and you wonder if they're going to make it and you, you know they're there and then all of a sudden you're at that graduation moment or that wedding moment and you're as proud as you can be of their accomplishments and your investment in their life and you're seeing them take these steps and you, you just got to smile and be thrilled with where they are. And then all of a sudden you get older and you've got the joy of grandchildren. I, I love that stage when all of a sudden now... <laughs> How many of you wish you were the speaker on Sunday mornings and you could show the pictures of your grandkids? Oh, Okay, no volunteer. But that joy and that thrill of being able to now have your children have children and all the things that you wish you would have done to them and, and, and can do for them, you now have the opportunity to do and invest your life and invest your time and invest your energy into the next generation. But you know and I know that families also can bring you some of the greatest heartache and probably to your knees faster than anything else. A rebellious child, losing a child, burying a parent way too soon. I don't even know that phrase out of the novel that you read when you were in high school. It was the best of times and worst of times. Remember that one? Who wrote it? Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities. That guy could have described that phrase with family reunions. Right? It's the best of times and the worst of times. I've done almost 200 weddings and almost over 300 and some funerals, and I've seen the best and the worst in families at those events. Some of the highlights of your life, some of the most amazing moments of your life, some of the thrills of your life, and more arguments at times than anyone could have imagined at those two amazing events. And you know and I know they bring you an amazing amount of joy. You walk through some really deep waters been an unusual week, been an unusual month in a lot of families' life. I carry with me this morning a a, a significant amount of hurt because of some situations that I've walked through this week with some family. I started last Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, walking with the family as as one of their members passed away. Today I leave for the funeral home to go down to see a friend who's had a stroke. Uh, In between, there's been the death of a child, the death of a mom. Uh, A lot of pain. My own grandson's in children's hospital. Just in an amazing amount of pain that a lot of people have had to deal with. Got a mom who's been sitting with her little boy for literally a month. He was born on March the 31st, and she's been there every day but one. Sitting by his side, I've got a wife who's a, a great gal, committed to her husband, who's been sitting there for over a month as her husband has gone through an enormous amount of difficulties. And it just seems like day after day after day of these last three or four weeks, And knowing that I'm going to speak about family and the joys and the heartache and and a lot of you, there is more pain in a room like this and in the next service than anyone can imagine. And not just what I see and experience. Some of you experience way worse than I have. But in an audience this side, there's an enormous amount of joy that comes within the context of family and a significant amount of pain that comes within the context of family. And you've experienced it. And so I... I never want to talk about the best of times and worst of times in a flippant manner because it brings you amazing moments in life and really deep pain. Many of you have walked through the pain of betrayal of divorce. God knew all of that. He initiated the institution of family and marriage. And in this particular command this morning, he said, I want you to, I want you to protect it. I want you to put some boundaries around your family. I want you to Put some boundaries around this wonderful gift called marriage. I want you to protect it with everything you have. I don't want you to violate it. So I'm going to ask you to do this. Don't commit adultery. I've given you this wonderful gift called marriage, and and I I want you to protect it. I want you to put a hedge around it. I don't want you to let anything happen to it. I don't want you to violate it. So I'm just going to tell you this right now. Don't, Don't commit adultery. Just as words last Sunday has the potential to kill the human spirit, so adultery has the potential to kill a marriage or at least trust in a marriage. My hope and my prayer this morning as we share this message is that it will have a balance of truth and grace. Compassion for those who have been hurt by adultery. Compassion for those who have committed adultery and found forgiveness and grace in Jesus with no intention to bring that pain back up this morning, but to help you understand in a broader context why God says so clearly, 1,400 years before Christ, put a hedge around your relationship. Don't violate it. Few things can hurt a marriage more than adultery. A number of years ago, there was a movie entitled Indecent Proposal in which Robert Redford offered a guy a million dollars for one night with his wife. I didn't see it, but talk shows all across the country had people on, and they asked him the question, if you were in the same situation, would you do that? Would you cheat on your spouse for a million dollars? And many thankfully said they would never do anything like that. But sadly, a lot said they would, and they would do it for a lot less. Some statistics say that almost 40% of American couples have had an affair at one time or the other or been close to that in their relationship. I think we know what adultery is, but let me define it better. To adulterate it as core in your sermon notes means to contaminate or to make impure. Literally, it means to add to the mix a foreign element, to add something that doesn't belong. You can adulterate a cake mix, adding an ingredient that doesn't belong, the consequences of Adulterating a cake mix aren't that really big of a deal. It may taste bad, but you don't pay that great a price. But in the case of marriage, the consequences are enormous. It can be devastating. In a marriage, the added ingredient is usually, obviously, another person. Most often, it includes sexual activity, but not always But even if it doesn't, it is still adultery because an emotional connectedness can be just as devastating as a physical one because you've allowed into your marriage an ingredient that doesn't belong. In a book called The State of Affairs, the author says this, affairs aren't just always about sex. When you've allowed that level of intimacy and closeness that should only be shared by your spouse to go towards someone else, you've crossed the line. An emotional affair can cause irreparable damage to a marriage even without sexual intimacy. And however you define it, God says, don't do it. And even if Bill Clinton isn't sure how to describe or define it, most of the rest of us do. God says, marriage and sexuality are my gifts to you, but I want you to to put a boundary around them, a, a fence to protect it for your sake and the sake of your children. All of these commands in Exodus chapter 20 were never given to restrict us. They were given as gifts. God knows how we're going to be pulled in so many different directions, how so many people are going to want our attention, so many things are going to come at us on a regular basis. So he said, let me give you a gift. Put me first, and I'll help you line everything else up underneath that. I know how you're wired. I made you. I know what you need to stay focused and find balance. So let me give you a gift. Work six days and stop on the seventh. There's a gift. Work six days, stop. Rest, reflect, realign your priorities. I created life, God would say. I know how precious it is, and I know how hard it is to lose someone you love. So let me give you a gift. Don't destroy life. Jesus said about that one, I know how powerful words are, so let me ask you to use them to lift people up. Give others a gift. And never to put them down or tear them apart. And about this command, God says, I I know how precious a marriage covenant is. You made it before me. So don't add something that doesn't belong. I'm doing this, I believe God would say, for your safety and for your sanity. And not just for you and your family, but for society at large. These boundaries I'm putting around you is going to protect not only you, but generations to come. You ignore them and you'll pay a dear price. And again, not only you, but the generations that follow you. The problem is with many people, we don't like boundaries. We don't like restrictions. We always think we have a better way. In November of 1997, a British paper reported that the Church of England wanted to remove the Ten Commandments from their new millennial prayer book that was coming out for the year 2000, saying that it was just too restrictive. Why, it's why a lot of people are leaving the church. God just too restrictive. They're not restricted. They're gifts that God gives us to protect us. But let me remind you that the price of defying those boundaries and restrictions are enormous. In all my years of ministry, I've had to deal with it way too often, sometimes with staff. I've seen the impact it has had on families, on spouses, on children, and on the church. Two weeks ago after writing this, I sat with a pastor who had it happen in his own family and his church. I mean, I literally wrote it, set it aside, Went to a visit, happened to run into a pastor, and he shared with me exactly what I just wrote down, not even knowing God wrote it. I've seen the betrayal of the one whose heart's been broken. I've seen the arrogance of the betrayal. I've sat with children who just wanted a normal family life. I sat with a pastor friend who, after restoration and healing took place, looked me in the eye and said, I honestly would have never believed in all of my life the devastating effects my decision would have had on my family, let alone on my church. I've seen the devastating effects this had on a church. It breaks trust and confidence in the institution of marriage, with young people asking, who can you trust anymore? I'm not even sure if I want to get married. Some have argued that recovery from betrayal is harder than recovery from the death of a spouse. I find it hard to believe, but think with me for a moment. When a spouse dies, you've got a wonderful support network of people, Right? They come flocking around you. They want to be there. They share with you a lot of love and admiration for the individual who just passed away. When there's adultery, you don't know what to say, so many don't even show up because they don't know what to say. When the spouse dies, you go to the funeral home, and you talk about how wonderful the mate was, right? What do you do in this case? What do you say about the one who committed adultery? That, that person that's had it happen to them not only has to deal with loneliness, They've got to deal with the feelings of betrayal and broken promises with humiliation and sometimes even the subtle implication that the affair was somehow their fault. If I'd have just been a better wife, if I'd have just been a better husband, I've heard them say it. There are a lot of reasons people get divorced, loss of a child, physical abuse, addictions, financial pressure, or even pressure from a me-first attitude in our culture that seems to indicate that whatever makes you happy is somehow a great virtue. Most will say that the single greatest threat to any marriage is adultery. Very few pressures in a marriage come as close to the emotional devastation of an affair. Please know my heart is not to rip open a wound or leave you in despair, thinking there isn't any hope for survival after an affair, because there is. I've seen God do some of the most amazing miracles on this planet. You think raising from the dead is an amazing miracle? Absolutely. But you raise a relationship that has been destroyed and seems dead back to life and see them love each other again and be committed to Christ, committed to their relationship and on, especially in many cases, on into ministry, that is a miracle. It takes an amazing amount of strength, grace and prayer, a lot of work, genuine repentance, significant amount of counseling this issue has a huge impact on family and society and the next generation. When I ask couples all the time who are preparing for marriage, who are your models of faithfulness and what are your fears, the conversation usually centers around this very subject. With not a whole lot of models and a huge fear of the future. And a huge fear of of failure. What used to be called adultery that carried shame and guilt now becomes an affair. A, A lack of discretion, a A momentary lapse in judgment laced with intrigue and mystery. It's as common as a cold. We've seen it so often on TV show after show, movie after movie, that they almost see it as normal. A Harris poll in the late 70s said that the increased emphasis on society or in society on placing self-fulfilling pleasure among everything else is eventually going to dramatically alter America's traditional value system. The increased emphasis in society and the society is placing on self-fulfilling pleasure and doing one's own thing will eventually dramatically alter America's traditional value system. Guess what? They were right. Marriage and a family has been under attack for years. One of the biggest weapons of the enemy uses against marriage and a family and a church is infidelity. If murder is an assault on the sanctity of human life, then adultery is an assault on the sanctity of marriage deeply wounding the soul and tearing apart one of the foundational pillars of marriage, trust. I said before a moment ago, there are many reasons that marriages fail, the death of a child, sudden job loss, abuse, addiction, financial troubles, obviously infidelity, the myth of the greener grass, unrealistic expectations, a misunderstanding of the role of conflict. First Corinthians 728, Paul said, after talking to singles for a long period of time, hey, it's not a Not a problem to get married at all. I just want you to know if you're going to get married, you're going to have some trouble. Greek word he uses for trouble means to press together. And when you press two people together, two things happen. One feels great. The other causes friction. Two opinions, two personalities, two ways of doing life. And every once in a while, I know it's a surprise for some of you, but every once in a while, you rub each other the wrong way, right? I know some of you are surprised by that. But it's a good thing there's nothing wrong with friction i love newlyweds who think there must be something wrong if we're having trouble there's nothing wrong you're human it's not if you're going to have trouble or difficulty paul would say it's when and how you deal with it i've heard a couple say we've never had a disagreement or a crossword a number of things run through my mind one is you're kidding and the other is one of you then must not have an opinion I believe that marriage is one of God's greatest gifts for our sanctification. Because when you put two people together, all the issues of their life come out. All of our selfishness that no one confronted us with when we were living alone now comes out. And now you have somebody to confront you with it. But When you stay together and work through the process, it can be one of God's greatest tools for your transformation. And then when you feel like you just got it mastered, <laughs> God gives you kids. And you start all over again pastor friend of mine, Dave Johnson, said this. Marriage is like two pieces of very tough meat being thrown together in a pressure cooker. And when the heat gets turned up, and if you treat each other with love, respect, honesty, and grace, and stay in the pot, over time you get tender. And juices begin to flow together, and it can be really delightful, but you have to stay in the pot. Imagine with me, though, in the midst of the heat being turned up, That every marriage goes through, you add to the mix a foreign element. Suddenly in the midst of my trouble, someone of the opposite sex comes in who understands me or listens to me or or whatever you're not getting at home all of a sudden provides that. And with this new person, you're not feeling any friction. You know why? Because you're not doing real life with Mr. Wonderful or Miss America. You have no bills, no kids, no dirty dishes, no in-laws, thank God, no history. And suddenly that person provides for what you think is a way out. And you start to believe the lie of Satan that in this new relationship, there'll never be any friction and no more trouble. But everybody has it. In your sermon notes, there are a number of stages that many marriages go through. The first stage is the honeymoon stage. I love that stage. My wife's been in it for the last 39 years. In this stage, we view our mate positively. We defend them. We we look out for them. We believe the best in them. We're always thinking about them. The negative about that stage is we can sometimes view our mate a little bit unrealistically. All I'm saying is every person has flaws. There's no such thing as a perfect mate. Some areas of our lives need to be changed after marriage. So we go from that to the specific irritation stage in your sermon notes. It doesn't take long that there are some things that irritate us about our mate. How long did it take, some of you? I mean, within the first years or the first two days or on the honeymoon. Like, seriously, that's what you do? Whatever it may be, there are things that irritate us about one another. They could be as simple as a toilet seat up or down, the toothpaste lid on or off, clothes strewn everywhere, or something even more irritating than that. When I do, That's so fun for me to do premarital counseling. Because I'll have them in a room and I'll separate them and divide them. And if you're thinking about getting married, close your ears. But I'll separate them and divide them. And then I'll say to them about all the wonderful things that the mate's going to say about them. Why do they love you? What do they think about you? What have they said about you? What have they told you? And I ask all these questions. And it's so fun to compare them. It's so fun to hear them answer those questions or saying, I have no idea. And then I'll say, Well, what are their idiosyncrasies? What are those little quirks about them? What are their flaws? And then they'll tell me one or two of them. And I'll say, Well, what are they going to say about you? And And then I'll bring them back in. And then I'll tell them what the other person said about them. And what they're, well, they ought to know that now, right? And it's so much fun to look at them and to listen to them respond. And I've had them tell me exactly already, they're not even married yet, what the other person is going to say. Pause this, fine. We begin in this stage to view our made a little bit more realistically. The negative about this stage is that too many times in your notes we develop a memory bank. Where we keep track of all those irritations, we don't always talk about it much. But there'll be a day when we do. Many go from that specific irritation state to the general discomfort state. That's when we look at marriage and say, "Seriously, is I, I didn't see this coming." Almost every person comes to a low spot in their life when they say, "Is that all there is? Is this what it's going to be for the rest of our life?" General discomfort comes when two specific when the specific ear stations in stage two become so heavy and so many. And the negative about that is in this context we draw from the memory bank way too often. When we bring up every wrong thing that our mates ever done. I know you've heard me say it before, but one of the hardest verses in all of scripture for a man to live out is first is Ephesians five twenty eight when it says to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Not hard to love your wife, but as Christ loved the church is one of the most incredible challenges in all scripture. But I've said before, as tenderly as I know how, but one of the hardest verses for a woman to live out is 1 Corinthians 13, 8. You know what that is? Love doesn't keep score. It keeps no records of wrong. Not only do they remember what you did wrong, they remember what day of the week it was and exactly what you said. It's at that stage that many really do go after one another. And then all of a sudden they move to stage four, which is the try harder stage, and and they really work it out. They realize that it's realistic. They realize that they need the work. They need the energy. They need to discuss with those issues. And they they go on to that make it or break it stage. Or for some in that make it or break it stage, they end up breaking it, and others really make it, and they work through the process of those irritations, and they recognize they've been keeping track of things for way too long, and and they really get the the necessary work and do everything that, that they possibly can To help them through the process. But it's near the end of these last two stages that it really can go either way. Because it's really hard sometimes to keep the energy level going. And it's usually then when they reach the end of their rope that they call one of us on a pastoral staff and say, could we get your help? As opposed to doing it way earlier in the process of difficulty. But let me tell you what also can happen. It's often at that point, when things are very difficult and things are very tense, I know it can happen the other way. I've got a whole sermon on David's life when the, the affair in his case, the, uh, the psalmist David, happened at the height of his career. I get that and I understand that. But in this context, it's many times in those deep valleys when our enemy Satan sends someone our way who will make us believe that it's better than what you have. And you buy his lie or deny or justify it, you'll sabotage the God-directed covenant that you once made when you said, for better for worse you'll convince yourself that maybe because there's no sex involved it's not adultery but i'm telling you you're still adding to the mix something that doesn't belong and it will sabotage the god intended covenant that you made and let me say this if you leave your marriage for the lie of the greener grass and you go with miss america or mr wonderful let me tell you you'll have the same trouble with mr wonderful as you're now having with mr potato head Who, by the way, a few years ago was Mr. Wonderful. And just so you know, it won't take long for Mr. Wonderful to turn into Mr. Potato Head. Some say the divorce rate among those who marry the person they had the affair with is almost 80%. You've got to be willing to press through the troubles and come out the other side. The single greatest threat to any marriage is adultery. No other pressure in marriage comes even close to the emotional devastation. Of adultery, which is one reason why God chose that one, I believe specifically, and said, "Don't violate. It. Put a hedge about it. Put a fence around it. Don't violate it." And I don't mean to leave you without hope when I say these statements, especially as it's happened to you, and certainly as I said a moment ago, I don't mean to bring up old wounds, because I've seen, as I said a, a moment ago, people recover in some really amazing ways. My desire in this particular case this morning, and especially next Sunday, is to, to stop it on the front end before you start down that path. To save you from the pain and devastation that it brings. Because recovery is possible. It may be the hardest thing you'll ever have to do, but it is possible. It takes genuine repentance, total and complete honesty. No more lying, no more hiding. It takes oceans of grace and rivers of mercy. Unbelievable forgiveness. So how do we protect ourselves from those destructive forces? I'm glad you asked. Because next week's entire message is on that very subject. The boundaries and barriers that you can bring around yourself and around your relationship and around your marriage that not only you can have as a great marriage and a great relationship, but you can also bring that into your family context. And you can help them see what they then want to live out into the next generation. Before you tune me out, I said at the beginning, I I really wanted to make sure that this message was mixed with grace as well as truth. So let me finish with grace. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about this morning because you've dealt with the pain. And maybe this morning because I brought it back up, which wasn't my intention, but it has reminded you of what happened and what took place and reminded you of the pain and the hurt. I want to end with some words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, which says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. till he has brought justice through to victory. A reed in the New Testament was a part of a musical instrument. You know, as Kenny played this morning, a reed in a saxophone is that little piece of wood in there that, that really does help it make the beautiful music. If a reed becomes worn out because of overuse or misuse or abuse, and won't make music anymore. It's usually thrown out and discarded. Smoldering wick and a candle could be the symbol of a person whose life was burning so great with passion for life and passion for their marriage. Fire isn't burning anymore and just sits there smoldering. The word from God about Jesus is this. He won't throw you away. And he won't snuff you out. He's in the business of healing and bringing back to life wounded people. Because wounded people matter to God, and by God, be amazingly healed. So that you can make music again, and burn brightly for life, and for your marriage. Never, ever, ever settle for less. Why? Because a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he's brought justice through to victory. Those words are for the wounded. They're also for the one who has wounded, who has sought forgiveness and grace in Jesus. If you want to find grace and forgiveness, it is available through Christ. Lord, I listened to the guys in our prayer room this morning pray before the service, and in my mind calculated almost two 150 years of marriage in that room. There's a lot in here who have stood the test of time and trouble, who have been incredible models of what it's like to look at someone years and years ago and say, I'm with you for for life, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. They've that commitment and they stood the test of time and trouble. They stand as wonderful models to look at of people who have made it through the commitment of life the ups and downs and the struggles of life some of you here this morning who have been hurt by it and i know they have found grace and forgiveness and restoration of jesus and so again remind them this morning of your amazing love for some who need the music back in who need to burn brightly again for marriage and for life itself i trust that you re- really will rekindle the flame Music back in their soul. May they live life abundantly and fully and completely in you. I thank you so much, Jesus, for these great guidelines that you have given us. And our love for you and for this day, for this weekend, for life, for family, for marriage. Thank you so much for your desire to protect us and the pain that it brings when we violate it. And so I lift up this church family to you this morning. For those who are living it, loving it, enjoying it to the fullest, may the next generation watch them, hear amazing models and stories of grace. For those who need your help, may they seek it today and not put it on. For others who need to stop what they're doing before they go down a road they cannot return from, may you stop them by your spirit today. In the name of Jesus, I pray.